The following is a conversation with Peter Norvig. He's the director of research at Google and the co-author with Stuart Russell of the book, Artificial Intelligence, A Modern Approach, that educated and inspired a whole generation of researchers, including myself, to get into the field of artificial intelligence. This is the Artificial Intelligence Podcast. If you enjoy it, subscribe on YouTube, give it five stars on iTunes, support on Patreon, or simply connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman, spelled F-R-I-D-M-A-N. And now, here's my conversation with Peter Norvig. Most researchers in the AI community, including myself, own all three editions, red, green, and blue, of the uh, Artificial Intelligence and Modern Approach. It's a field-defining textbook, as many people are aware, that you wrote with Stuart Russell. How has the book changed, and how have you changed uh, in relation to it from the first edition to the second to the third, and now fourth edition as you work on it? Yeah, so it's, so it's been a lot of years, a lot of changes. One of the things changing from the first to maybe the second or third was just the rise of uh, computing power, right? So I think in the in the first edition we said uh, here's predicate logic, but uh, that only goes so far because pretty soon you have millions of uh, short little predicate expressions and they couldn't possibly fit in memory. Uh, so we're going to use first-order logic that's uh, more concise. And then we quickly real- realized, oh, predicate logic is pretty nice because there are really fast SAT solvers and other things. And look, there's only millions of expressions, and that fits easily into memory, or maybe even billions fit into memory now. So that was a change of uh, the type of technology we needed just because the hardware expanded. Even to the second edition? So yeah. resource constraints yeah. were loosened significantly for yeah. the second? Yeah, And that was and the then, early 2000s second edition? Right. So yeah. 95 was the first, and then uh, 2000, 2001 or so. And then uh, moving on from there. I think we're, we're starting to see that again with the uh, GPUs and then uh, more specific type of uh, machinery like the TPUs and you're seeing custom ASICs and so on uh, for deep learning. So we're seeing another advance in terms of the hardware. Then I think another thing that we especially noticed this time around is in all three of the first editions, we kind of said, well, we're going to find AI as maximizing expected utility. Mm-hmm. And you tell me your utility function. And now we've got 27 chapters worth of cool techniques for how to optimize that. I think in this edition, we're saying more, you know what? Maybe that optimization part is the easy part. Mm-hmm. And the hard part is deciding what is my utility function? What do I want? And if I'm a collection of agents or a society, uh, what do we want as a whole? So you touched that topic in this edition. You get yeah. a little bit more into utility. Yeah. yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, on a, a technical level, we're almost pushing the philosophical. I guess it, it is philosophical, right? So we, we've always had a philosophy chapter, which, which I was uh, glad to, that we were supporting. And now it's less kind of the uh, you know Chinese room type argument mm-hmm. and more of these uh, ethical and societal Type issues. Uh, so we get into uh, the issues of uh, fairness and bias, 
and uh, and just the issue of uh, aggregating utilities. So how do you encode human values into a utility <laughs> function? Is, is this something that you can do purely through data in a learned way, or is there some systematic, obviously there's no good answers yet. There's just yeah. uh, beginnings to this, uh, to, to even opening right. the doors. These so questions. there is no one answer. Yes, there are techniques uh, to try to learn that. So we talk about inverse reinforcement learning, mm -hmm. right? So reinforcement learning, uh, you take some actions, you get some rewards, and you figure out what actions you should take. And inverse reinforcement learning, you observe somebody taking actions, and you figure out, uh, well, that this must be what they were trying to do. If mm -hmm. they did this action, it must be because they wanted it. Of course, there's restrictions to that, right? So lots of people take actions that are self-destructive mm -hmm. uh, or they're, they're suboptimal in a certain ways. So you don't want to learn that. Right. You want to uh, somehow learn the, uh, the, the perfect actions uh, rather than the ones they actually take. So, uh, so that's a challenge mm -hmm. uh, for that field. Then another big part of it is just kind of uh, theoretical of saying, uh, what can we accomplish? And so you look at like this, this work on the uh, programs to uh, predict recidivism and decide uh, you know, who should get parole or who should get bail or whatever. Uh, and how are you going to evaluate that? And one of the big issues is fairness across protected classes protected classes being things like uh, sex and race and so on. And uh, so two things you want is you want to say, well, if I get a score of, say, uh, six out of 10, then I want that to mean the same, whether no matter what race I'm on. Yes. Right. So I want to have a 60% chance of, uh, of reoccurring uh, regardless. Uh, and the makers of the uh, one of the makers of a commercial program to do that says that's what we're trying to optimize and look we achieved that we've uh, we've reached that kind of, uh, of balance and then on the other side you also want to say uh well if if it makes mistakes i want that to affect both sides of the protected class equally and it turns out they don't do that right so they're they're twice as likely to make a mistake that would harm a, a black person over a white person so that seems unfair so you'd like to say, well, I want to achieve both those goals. And then it turns out you do the analysis and it's theoretically impossible to achieve both those goals. So you have to trade them off one against the other. So that analysis is really helpful to know uh, what you can aim for and how much you can get. You can't have everything. But the analysis certainly can't tell you where should we make that trade-off point. But nevertheless, then we can, uh, as humans, deliberate where that trade-off should be. Yeah, right? so at least we now we're, we're arguing in an informed way. We, right. We're not asking for something impossible. We're saying, uh, here's where we are, and, and here's what we aim for, and uh, this strategy is better than that strategy. So that's, I would argue, is, is a really powerful and really important first step, uh, but it's a doable one, sort of removing uh, undesirable degrees of bias in uh, in systems mm -hmm. in terms of protected classes and then there's something i listened to your uh commencement speech or there's some fuzzier things like you mentioned angry birds yeah do you want do you want to create systems that feed the dopamine enjoyment uh, that feed that optimize for you returning to the system enjoying the moment of playing the game of getting likes or whatever mm -hmm. this kind of thing or some kind of long-term improvement right it's i've are you even thinking about that 
that's that's really going to the philosophical yeah. area. Uh, yeah. I think that's a, a really important issue too. Certainly thinking about that, I, I don't think about that as a, as an AI issue as much. Mm. But as you say, you know, the the point is we've built this society and this infrastructure where we say we have a marketplace for attention and uh, we've decided as a society that we like things that are free and so we want all uh, apps on our phone to be free uh, and that means they're all competing for your attention and then eventually they they make some money some way through uh, ads or in-game sales or whatever but they can only win by uh, defeating all the other apps by in stealing your attention and we build a marketplace where it seems like they're uh, working against you rather than working with you. And I'd like to find a way where we can change the playing field so we feel more like, well, these things are on my side. Yes, they're letting me have some fun in the short term, but they're also helping me in the long term rather than competing against me. And those aren't necessarily conflicting objectives. They're just right. uh, the incentives, the direct current incentives as we try to figure out this whole new world uh, seem to be on uh, the the easier part of that, which is feeding the dopamine, uh, the rush. Right. But uh, so maybe taking a quick step back uh, at the beginning of the Artificial Intelligence and Modern Approach book of writing. So here you are in the 90s when you first set, uh, sat down with Stuart to write the book to cover an entire field which is one of the only books that has successfully done that for AI and actually in, in a lot of other computer science fields, you know, it's a diff it's a, it's a huge undertaking. So it must've been quite daunting. What was that process like? Did you envision that you would be trying to cover the entire field? Was there a systematic approach to it that was more step-by-step? -step? How was, yeah. how did it feel? So I guess it came about, you know, go to lunch with the other AI faculty at Berkeley, and we'd say, uh, you know, the field is changing. Seems like the current books are a little bit behind. Nobody's come out with a new book recently. We should do that. And everybody said, yeah, yeah, that's a great thing to do. Uh, and we never did anything. <laughs> right. And then I ended up uh, heading off to uh, industry. I went to uh, Sun Labs. So I thought, well, that's the end of my possible academic publishing career. Mm -hmm. But I met Stuart again at a conference like a year later and said, you know, that book we were always talking about, you guys must be half done with it by now, right? <laughs> and he said, well, we keep talking, we never do anything. So I said, well, you know, we should do it. And I think the reason is that we all felt it was a time where the field was changing. And that was in two ways. So, you know, the good old fashioned AI was based uh, primarily on Boolean logic, and you had a few tricks to deal with uncertainty, and it was based pr primarily on knowledge engineering, that mm -hmm. the way you got something done is you went out, you interviewed an expert, and you wrote down by hand everything they knew. And we saw in, in uh, 95 that the field was changing in, in two ways. One, we were moving more towards probability rather than Boolean logic, and we were moving more towards machine learning rather than knowledge engineering. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other books uh, hadn't caught that wave. They were still in the, uh, more in the, in the old school, although so certainly they had part of that uh, on the way. But we said, if we start now completely taking that point of view, 
we can have a, a different kind of book. And we were able to put that together. And uh, what was literally the process, if you remember? What, did you start writing a chapter? Did you outline? Yeah, I guess I guess we did an, an outline, and then we sort of assigned chapters to each person. At the time, uh, I had moved to Boston, and Stuart was in Berkeley. So basically, uh, we did it uh, uh, over the internet, and uh, you know that's, that wasn't the same as doing it today. It meant uh, you know uh, dial-up lines and telnetting right. in, and <laughs> you know you you telneted into uh, one shell, and you type cat file name, right. and you hoped it was captured at the other end, and. And certainly you're not sending uh, images and figures back and forth. Right, right. That didn't work. <laughs> but, you know, did you anticipate where the field would go from that day, uh, from uh, from the 90s? Did you see the growth into learning-based methods, into data-driven methods that followed in the future decades? We certainly thought that uh, learning was important. I guess we we missed it as uh, being as important as it as it is today. We we missed this idea of big data. We missed that uh, uh, the idea of deep learning hadn't been invented yet. We could have uh, taken the book from a complete uh, machine learning point of view right from the start. We chose to do it more from a point of view of we're going to first develop uh, different types of representations. And we're going to talk about different types of environments. Of uh, is it fully observable or partially observable, and is it uh, deterministic or stochastic, and so on. And we uh, made it more complex along those axes, rather than uh, focusing on the machine learning axis first. Do you think you know? There's some sense in which the deep learning craze is extremely successful for a particular set of problems, and you know, eventually it's going to, in the general case, hit challenges. So in terms of the difference between uh, perception systems and robots that have to act in the world, do you think uh, we're going to return to AI, modern approach type breadth in edition five and six yeah. in, uh, in future decades? Do you think uh, deep learning will take its place as a chapter in this bigger is in this bigger uh, view of AI? Yeah, I think we don't know yet how it's all going to play out. So uh, in the new edition, uh, we have a chapter on deep learning. Uh, right. we, we got Ian Goodfellow to be the uh, guest author <laughs> for that chapter. Great. So he, he said he could condense his whole uh, deep learning book <laughs> into one chapter. I, I think he did a great job. We were also encouraged that he, you know, we gave him the old uh, neural net chapter and said, uh, <laughs> Have fun with it. Modernize that. And he said, you know, half of that was okay. Yeah. That uh, certainly there's lots of new things that have been developed, but some of the core was still the same. So I think we'll gain a better understanding of what you can do there. I think we'll need to incorporate all the things we can do with the other technologies, mm -hmm. right? So deep learning started out convolutional networks and uh, very close to perception uh, and has since moved to be uh, to be able to do more with uh, actions and some degree of, of longer term planning uh, but we need to do a better job with uh, representation and reasoning and 
uh, one-shot learning and so on. And I think we don't know yet how that's going to play out. So do you think looking at the some success, but certainly uh, eventual demise, a partial demise of experts to symbolic uh, systems in the 80s, do you think there is kernels of wisdom in the work that was done there with logic and reasoning and so on that will rise again in your view? So certainly I think the idea of representation and reasoning is crucial that, uh, you know, sometimes you just don't have enough data about the world to learn de novo. Uh, so you've got to have a, uh, some idea of representation, whether that was programmed in or told or whatever, and then be able to take uh, steps of reasoning. I, I think the problem uh, with, uh, you know, the good old fashioned AI was uh, one, we tried to base everything on these uh, symbols that were atomic. And that's great if you're like trying to define the properties of a triangle, right? Because right? they have necessary and sufficient conditions. Uh, but things in the real world don't. The real world is, is messy and doesn't have sharp edges and atomic symbols do. So that was a, a poor match. And then the other aspect was that the uh, reasoning was universal and applied anywhere, which in some sense is good, but it also means there's no guidance as to where to apply. Mm -hmm. And so you, you, know, you started getting these paradoxes like, uh, uh, well, if I have a mountain and I remove one grain of sand, uh, then it's still a mountain. And, but if I do that repeatedly, at some point it's not, right? And uh, with logic, you know, there's nothing to stop you from applying things uh, repeatedly. Uh, but maybe with uh, something like uh, deep learning, and I don't really know what the right name for it is, uh, we could separate out those ideas. So one, we could say, uh, you know, a uh, mountain isn't just an atomic notion. It, it's some sort of something like a word embedding that uh, uh, has a, a more complex representation. Mm. Yeah. And secondly, we could somehow learn, yeah, there's this rule that you can remove one grain of sand, uh, and you can do that a bunch of times, but you can't do it uh, a near infinite amount of times. But on the other hand, when you're doing induction on the integer, sure, then it's fine to do it an infinite number of times. And if we could, uh, somehow we have to learn when these strategies are applicable, uh, rather than having the strategies be completely neutral and av uh, available everywhere. Anytime you use neural networks, anytime you learn from data, form representation from data in an automated way, it's not very explainable as to, uh, or it's not introspective to us humans in terms of uh, how this neural network sees the world. Where, why does it succeed so brilliantly on so many in so many cases and fail so miserably in surprising yeah. ways and small? So, what do you think is this, is uh, the future there can simply more data, better data, more organized data solve that problem? Or is there elements of the symbolic systems that need to be brought in, which are a little bit more explainable? Yeah. So I prefer to talk about trust and uh, validation and verification rather than just about explainability. And then I think uh, explanations are one tool that you use towards those goals. 
And I think it is an important issue that uh, we don't want to use these systems unless we trust them and we want to understand where they work and where they don't work. And, and an explanation can be part of that, right? So I apply for a loan and I get uh, denied. Uh, I want some explanation of why. And uh, you have, uh, in Europe, we have the GDPR that says uh, you're required to be able to get that. But on the other hand, an explanation alone is not enough, right? So, you know, we were used to dealing with people and with uh, organizations and corporations and so on, and they can give you an explanation, and you have no guarantee that that explanation relates to reality, right? right? So the bank can tell me, well, you didn't get the loan because you didn't have enough collateral, and that may be true, or it may be true that they just didn't like my uh, religion or, or something else. Uh, I can't tell from the explanation. And that's, uh, that's true whether the decision was made by a computer or by a person. So I want more. I do want to have the explanations and I want to be able to uh, have a conversation to go back and forth mm -hmm. and said, well, you gave this explanation, but what about this? Mm -hmm. And what would have happened if this had happened? And uh, what, what would I need to change that? So I think a conversation is, is a better way to think about it than just uh, an explanation as a single output. Uh, and I think we need testing of various kinds, right? So in order to know, was the decision really based on my collateral or was it based on my uh, religion or skin color or whatever? I can't tell if I'm only looking at my case, but if I look across all the cases, then I can detect a pattern, right? right? So you wanna have that kind of capability. Uh, you wanna have these adversarial testing, Right, so we thought we were doing pretty good at uh, object recognition and, and images. We said, "Look, we're, we're at sort of pretty close to human level performance on ImageNet and so on." Uh, and then you start seeing these adversarial images, and you say, "Wait a minute, that part is nothing like human performance." Uh, yeah, you can mess with it really easily. You can mess with it really easily, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, you can do that to humans too, right? So in a different way, perhaps. Right, humans yeah. don't know what color the dress was. Right. And so they're vulnerable to certain attacks that are different than the attacks on the on the machines. But the you know the attacks on the machines are so striking, uh, they really change the way you think about what we've done, right? And the the way I think about it is, I think part of the problem is we're seduced by uh, our low dimensional metaphors, right? <laughs> yeah. So like you know that. you look I like that phrase. <laughs> you look in. Uh, in a textbook and you say, okay, now we've mapped out the space and, you know, a uh, cat is here and dog is here and maybe there's a tiny little spot in the middle yeah. where you can't tell the difference, but mostly we've got it all covered. And if you believe that metaphor, uh, then you say, well, we're nearly there. And, uh, you know, there's only going to be a couple adversarial images. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's the wrong metaphor. And what you should really say is it's not a 2D flat space that we've got mostly covered. It's a million dimension space and a uh, cat is this string that goes out in this crazy path. And yeah. if you step a little bit off the path in any direction, you're in nowhere's land and you don't know what's gonna happen. And so I think that's where we are. And uh, now we've got to deal with that. So uh, it wasn't so much an explanation, but it was an, an understanding of what the models are and what they're doing. And now we can start exploring, how do you fix that? Yeah, validating the robustness of the system so on. but. Take you back to the this uh, this word trust. Uh, do you think we're a little too hard on our robots uh, in terms <laughs> of uh, the standards we apply? So you know, 
of uh, th- th- there's a dance there's a there's a there's a dance in nonverbal and verbal communication between humans. You know, if we apply the same kind of standard in terms of humans, you know, we trust each other pretty quickly. Uh, you know, you and I haven't met before, and there's some degree of trust, yeah. <laughs> right? That uh, nothing's going to go crazy wrong. And yet, to AI, when we look at AI systems, where we seem to approach uh, with skepticism, always, always, yeah. and it's like they have to prove through a lot of hard work that they're even worthy of our, even inkling of our trust. What do you What do you think about that? How How do we break that barrier? Close that gap? I think that's right. I think that's a big issue. Uh, just listening, uh, my friend uh, Mark Moffat is a naturalist, and he says uh, the most amazing thing about humans is that you can walk into a, a coffee shop or a, a busy street in a city, and there's lots of people around you that you've never met before, and you don't kill each other. <laughs> yeah. He says chimpanzees cannot do that. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. If a chimpanzee's in a situation where here's some uh, that aren't from my tribe, bad things happen. Especially in a coffee shop, there's delicious food around, you know. Yeah, yeah. But we, but we humans have figured that out, yeah. right? Uh, and, you know. For the most we, part. For the most part. We still go to war. We still do terrible things. Uh, but for the most part, we've learned to trust each other and, and live together. Uh, so that's going to be important for our uh, our AI systems as well. And I th- also I think uh, you know a lot of the emphasis is on AI, uh, but in many cases uh, AI is part of the technology, but isn't really the main thing. So a lot of, of what we've seen is more due to communications technology mm-hmm. than AI te- AI technology. Yeah, you want to make these good decisions, but the reason uh, we're able to have any kind of system at all is we've got the communication so that we're collecting the data and so that we can reach lots of people around the world. I think that's a a bigger change that we're dealing with. Speaking of reaching a lot of people around the world, on the side of education, you've, uh, one of the many things in terms of education you've done, you've taught the Intro to Artificial Intelligence course that signed up 100,000, 160,000 students is one of the first successful example of a massive, uh, of a MOOC, massive open online course. What did you learn from that experience? Uh, what do you think is the future of MOOCs, of education online? Yeah, it was a great fun doing it, particularly uh, being right at the start, just because it was exciting and new, but it also meant that we had less competition. <laughs> right. So uh, one of the things you hear about, uh, well, the problem with MOOCs is uh, the completion rates are, are so low, so it must be a failure. And and I got to admit, I'm a prime contributor, right? Mm-hmm. I probably uh, started 50 different courses that I haven't finished, but I got exactly what I wanted out of them because I had never intended to finish them. I just wanted to uh, dabble in a little bit, either to see the topic matter or just to see the pedagogy of how are they doing this class. So I guess the main thing I learned is when I came in, I thought uh, the challenge was information, saying if I'm just uh, take the stuff I want you to know and I'm very clear and explain it well, then my job is done and good things are going to happen. And then in in doing the course, I learned, uh, well, yeah, you got to have the information, but really the motivation is the most important thing that... uh, if students don't stick with it, then it doesn't matter how good the content mm-hmm. is. 
Uh, and I think being one of the first classes, we were helped by uh, sort of exterior motivation. So we tried to do a good job of making it enticing and setting up uh, uh, ways for uh, you know the community to work with each other to make it more motivating. But really, a lot of it was, hey, this is a, a new thing, and I'm really excited to be part of a new thing. And so the students brought their own motivation. And so I think this is great because there's lots of people around the world who have never had this before, mm-hmm. who you know, uh, would never have the opportunity to uh, go to Stanford and take a class or go to MIT or go to one of the other schools. Uh, but now we can bring that to them. And if they bring their own motivation, uh, they can be successful in a way they couldn't before. But that's really just the top tier of people that are ready to do that. The rest of the people uh, just don't see or you know, don't have the motivation and don't see how if they push through and were able to do it, what advantage that would get them. Uh, so I think we got a long way to go before we're able to do that. And I think it'll be some of it is based on technology, but more of it's based on the idea of community. That you got to actually get people together. Some of the getting together can be done online. I think some of it really has to be done in person to be able to, in order to build that type of uh, community and trust. You know, there's an intentional mechanism that we've developed uh, a short attention span, especially younger people, uh, because sort of shorter and shorter videos online. Uh, there's a whatever the the way the brain is devel- is developing now with people that have grown up with the internet they have a quite a short attention span so and I, I would say I had the same when I was growing up too probably for different reasons so I probably wouldn't have uh, learned as much as I have if I wasn't forced to sit in a physical classroom mm-hmm. sort of bored sometimes falling sure. asleep but sort of forcing myself through that process to sometimes extremely difficult computer science courses. What, what's the difference in your view between in-person education experience, which you, uh, first of all, yourself had and you yourself yeah. taught and online education? And how do we close that gap if it's even possible? Yeah, so I think there's two issues. One is whether it's in-person or online, so it's sort of the physical location. And then the other is uh, kind of the affiliation, right? So you stuck with it in part because you were in the classroom and you saw everybody else was suffering the same way you were, (laughs) Uh, but also because you were enrolled, you had paid tuition, sort of everybody was expecting you to stick with it. Mm -hmm. Society, Uh, parents, uh, peers. Right. And so those are two separate things. I mean, you could certainly imagine... I pay a huge amount of tuition and everybody signed up and says, yes, you're doing this. Uh, but then I'm in my room and my classmates are in, are in different rooms, right? We, we could have things set up that way. Uh, so it's not just the online versus offline. I think what's more important is the commitment uh, that you've made. And certainly it is important to have that kind of informal uh you know, I meet people outside of class. We talk together because we're all in it together. Uh, I think that's uh, really important, both in keeping your motivation and also that's where some of the most important learning goes on. So you want to have that. Uh, maybe, you know, especially now we start getting into higher bandwidths and augmented reality and virtual reality. You might be able to get that without being in the same physical place. Do you think it's possible we'll see a course 
at Stanford, for example, that for students, enrolled students is only online in the near future, where literally sort of it's part of the curriculum and there is no... Yeah, so you're starting to see that. Uh, I know uh, Georgia Tech has a master's uh, that's done that way. Oftentimes it's sort of, they're creeping in in terms of a master's program or sort of um, further education, considering the constraints of students and so on. But I mean, literally, is it possible that we, as, you know, Stanford, MIT, Berkeley, all these places go online only in uh, in the next few decades. Yeah, hey, uh, probably not because you know they've got a big uh, commitment to a physical campus. Sure, right. So there, there's <laughs> there's uh, a momentum that's yeah. both financial and cultural, yeah. right? And and then there are certain things that's just hard to do uh, virtually, right? So. You know, we're in a field uh, where uh, if you have your own computer and your own paper and so on, uh, you can do the work anywhere. Uh, but if you're in a biology lab or something, uh, you know, you, you don't have all the right stuff at home. All right. So our field, programming, you've also done a lot of, you've done a lot of programming yourself. In uh, 2001, you wrote a great article about programming called Teach Yourself Programming in 10 Years, sort of response to all the books that say teach yourself programming in 21 days. So if you were giving advice to someone getting into programming today, this is a a few years since you've written that article, what's the best way to undertake that journey? I think there's lots of different ways, and I think uh, programming means more things now. And I guess, you know, when I wrote that article, I was thinking more about becoming a professional software engineer. And I thought that's a, you know, a sort of a career long uh, field of study. Uh, But I think there's lots of things now that people can do where programming is a part of solving what they want to solve without achieving that professional level status, right? So I'm not going to be going and writing a million lines of code, but, you know, I'm a biologist or a physicist or something or a even a historian, and I've got some data, and I want to ask a question of that data. And I think for that, uh, you don't need 10 years, right? So there, there are many shortcuts to uh, being able to answer those kinds of questions. And, and you know, you see today a lot of uh, emphasis on uh, learning to code, mm-hmm. teaching kids how to code. Uh, I think that's great, uh, but I wish they would change the message a little bit, right? So. I think code isn't the main thing. I don't really care if you know the syntax of JavaScript or if you can uh, connect these blocks together in this visual language. Uh, But what I do care about is that you can analyze a problem, uh, you can uh, think of a solution, you can uh, carry out, uh, you know, make a model, run that model, test the model, see the results, uh, verify that they're reasonable, uh, ask questions and answer them. All right. So it's more uh, modeling and problem solving. And, mm-hmm. and you use coding in order to do that. Uh, but it's not just learning coding for its own sake. That's really interesting. So it's actually almost, in many cases, it's learning to work with data, to extract yeah, something yeah. useful out of data. So when you say problem solving, you really mean taking some kind of, maybe collecting some kind of data set, cleaning it up, and saying something interesting about it, which is yeah. useful in all kinds of domains, uh, and you know, and, and I see myself uh, being stuck 
sometimes in kind of the, the old ways, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I'll be working on a project uh, maybe with a, a younger employee and we say, oh, well, here's this new package that could help solve this uh, problem. And I'll go and I'll start reading the manuals and, you know, I'll be <laughs> two hours into reading the manuals. And then uh, my colleague comes back and says, I'm done. Yep. You know, I downloaded the package. I installed it. I tried calling some things. The first one didn't work. The second one worked. Now I'm done. And, and I say, but I have 100 questions about how does this work and how does that work? And they say, who cares, right? I don't need to understand the whole thing. I, under- I answered my question. It's a big, complicated package. I don't understand the rest of it, but I got the right answer. And I'm just, it's hard for me to get into that mindset. I want to understand the whole thing. And, you know, if they wrote a manual, I should probably read it. And, but that's not necessarily the right way. And I, I think I have to get used to dealing with more, being more comfortable with uncertainty and not knowing everything. Yeah. So I struggle with the same. It's sort of the, the spectrum between Donald, Don Knuth. Yeah. It's kind of the very, you know, be, before he can say anything about a problem, he really has to get down to the machine code as, uh, assembly. Yeah. Versus exactly what you said. I've, I have several students in my group that, uh, you know, 20 years old, and they can solve almost any problem within a few hours. That would take me probably weeks because I would try to, as you said, read the manual. So, so do you think the nature of mastery, you're, you're mentioning biology, sort of outside disciplines, applying programming, but computer scientists. So over time, there's higher and higher levels of abstraction available now. So with, with uh, this week, there's a, yeah. the TensorFlow Summit, yeah. right? So t- <laughs> if, you're, if you're not particularly into deep learning, but you're still a computer scientist, uh, you can accomplish an incredible amount with uh, TensorFlow without really knowing any fundamental internals of machine learning. Do you think the nature of mastery has, is changing, uh, even for computer scientists, like what it means to be an expert programmer? Yeah, I, I think that's true. You know, we never really should have focused on programmer, right? Because it's still, it's, it's a skill, and what we really want to focus on is the result. So we, we built this uh, ecosystem where the way you can get stuff done is by programming it yourself. Right. At least when I started, it, you know, library functions meant you had square root, and that was about <laughs> it, <laughs> right? Everything yeah. else you built from scratch. Yeah. And then we built up an ecosystem where a lot of times, well, you can download a lot of stuff that does a big part of what you need. And so now it's more a question of uh, assembly rather than uh, uh, manufacturing. And uh, that's a different way of looking at problems. From another perspective, in terms of mastery and looking at programmers or people that reason about problems in a computational way, so Google... Uh, you know, the, from the hiring perspective, from the perspective of hiring or building a team of programmers, uh, how do you determine if someone's a good programmer, or if somebody, again, yeah. so I want to deviate from, uh, I want to move away from the word programmer, but somebody who can solve problems of large scale data and so on. What's what's uh, how do you build a team like that through the interviewing process? For yeah, example? and I and I think uh, as a company grows, uh, you get more. Uh, expansive in the types of people you're looking for, right? So uh, I think, you know, in the early days, we'd interview people, and the question we were trying to ask is, uh, how close are they to Jeff Dean? (laughs) (laughs) 
and, sure, and most sure. people were pretty far away, but yeah. we take the ones that were, you know, not that far away. Yeah. And so we got kind of a homogeneous group of people who are really great programmers. Yeah. Uh, then as a company grows, you say, well, we don't want everybody to be the same, to have the same skill set. And so now we're uh, hiring uh, biologists in our health areas, and we're hiring physicists, and we're hiring uh, mechanical engineers, and we're hiring, uh, you know, uh, social scientists and ethnographers and people with different backgrounds uh, who bring different skills. Mm-hmm. So you have uh, mentioned that you uh, still may partake in code reviews. Given that you have a wealth of experience, as you've also mentioned, uh, what errors do you often see and tend to highlight in the code of junior developers of people coming up now, uh, given your background from Lisp to uh, uh, a couple of decades of programming? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, sometimes I try to look at the uh, flexibility of the design of, uh, yes, you know, this API solves this problem, but uh, where is it going to go in the future? Who else is going to want to call this? Mm. And, uh, you know, are, are you making it easier for them to do that? That's a matter of uh, design. Is it documentation? Is it is it uh, sort of an amorphous thing you can't really put into yeah. words? It's just how it feels. If you put yourself in the shoes of a developer, would you use this kind of thing? I think it is how you feel, right? right? And so, yeah, documentation is good, uh, but it's but it's more a design question, right? If you get the design right, then people will figure it out whether the documentation is good or not. And if, right. and if the design's wrong, uh, then it'll be harder to use. How have uh, you yourself changed as a programmer? over the years uh, in in a way you already started to say sort of you want to read the manual you want to understand the core of the from the syntax to the how the language is supposed to be used and so on but um, what's the evolution been like from the 80s 90s to today I guess one thing is you don't have to worry about uh, the small details of efficiency as as much as you used to, right? So, like, I remember uh, I did my uh, list book uh, in the 90s, and one of the things I wanted to do was say, uh, here's how you do an object system. And uh, basically, uh, we're going to make it so each object is a hash table, and you look up the methods, and here's how it works. And then I said, of course, the real common Lisp object system is much more complicated. It's got all these efficiency type issues. Mm -hmm. And this is just a toy. Nobody would do this in real life. And it turns out Python pretty much did exactly (laughs) what I said. Yeah. And said uh, objects are uh, just dictionaries. And yeah, they have a few little uh, tricks as well. But mostly, you know, the thing that would have been 100 times too slow in the 80s is now plenty fast for most everything. So you had to, as a programmer, let go of perhaps an obsession that I remember coming up with of trying to write efficient code. Yeah, that to say, you know, what really matters is the total time uh, it takes to get the project done. (laughs) And most of that's going to be the programmer time. Uh, So if you're a little bit less efficient, but it makes it easier to understand and modify, then that's the right trade-off. So you've written quite a bit about Lisp. Your book on programming is in Lisp. You 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 have a lot of code out there that's in Lisp. So um, 
myself and people who don't know what Lisp is should look it up. Yeah. It's my favorite language for many AI researchers. It is a favorite language. The favorite language they never use uh, mm -hmm. these days. Uh, so what part of Lisp do you find most beautiful and powerful? So I think the beautiful part is the simplicity that in half a page you can define the whole language. And uh, other languages don't have that, so you feel like you can hold everything in your head. And then, you know, a lot of people say, well, then that's too simple. You know, here's all these things I want to do. And, uh, you know, my Java or Python or whatever has 100 or 200 or 300 different syntax rules, and don't I need all those? Mm -hmm. And Lisp's answer was, no, we're only going to give you eight or so syntax rules, but we're going to allow you to define your own. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was a very powerful idea. And I think this idea of saying, uh, I can start with my problem and with my data, and then I can build the language I want uh, for that problem and for that data, and then I can make Lisp define that language. So you, uh, you're sort of uh, mixing levels and saying, I'm simultaneously uh, a programmer in a language and a language designer. And that allows a better match between your problem and your eventual code. And I think Lisp had uh, done that better than other languages. Yeah, it's a very elegant implementation of functional programming. But why do you think Lisp has not had the mass adoption and success of yeah. languages like Python? Is it the parentheses? <laughs> Is it all the parentheses? <laughs> yeah. So I think a couple of things. So one was, I think it was designed for a single programmer or a small team and a skilled programmer who had the good taste to say, well, I'm, I am doing language design and I have to make uh, good choices. And if you make good choices, that's great. If you make bad choices, uh, you can hurt yourself mm -hmm. and it can be hard for other people on the team to understand it. So I think there was a, a limit to the scale of the size of a project in terms of number of people that Lisp was good for. And as an industry, we kind of grew uh, beyond that. I think it is in part the parentheses. You know, one of the jokes is the acronym for Lisp is uh, lots of irritating, silly parentheses. Uh, <laughs> uh, my acronym was uh, Lisp is syntactically pure, saying all you need is parentheses and atoms. But I remember. You know, so we had the, the AI textbook, and uh, because we did it in the 90s, we had, uh, we had pseudocode in the book, but then we said, well, we'll have Lisp online, because that's the language of AI at the time. Mm -hmm. And I remember some of the students complaining, because they hadn't had Lisp before, and they didn't quite understand what was going on. And, and I remember one student complained, I don't understand how this pseudocode corresponds to this Lisp. And there was a one-to-one -one correspondence between the... <laughs> the uh, symbols in the code and the pseudocode. And the only thing difference was the parentheses. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, it must be that for some people, a certain number of left parentheses shuts off their brain. <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's very possible in that sense. And Python just goes the other yeah. way. And so, says, so uh, that was the point at which I said, okay, can't have only Lisp as a language. Because yeah. I, you know, I don't want to, you know, you only got 10 or 12 or 15 weeks or whatever it is to teach AI. And I don't want to waste two weeks of that teaching Lisp. So I say, I got to have another language. Java was the most popular language at the time. I started doing that. And then I said, it's really hard 
to have a one-to-one correspondence between the pseudocode and the Java, because Java is so verbose. Uh, so then I said, I'm going to do a survey and find the language that's most like my pseudocode. And it turned out Python basically was my pseudocode. <laughs> Somehow I had channeled uh, Guido, <laughs> designed a pseudocode that was the same as Python, although I hadn't heard of Python uh, at that point. Uh, and from then on, uh, that's what I've been using because it's been a good match. So what's the story in Python behind PyTudes? Your GitHub repository yeah. with puzzles and exercises and Python is pretty fun. Yeah, just it, it, it seemed like fun. Uh, you know, you know, I like uh, doing puzzles and I like uh, being an educator. I, I did a class with Udacity, uh, Udacity uh, 212, I think it was. It was basically problem solving uh, uh, using Python and looking at different problems. Does PyTudes and, feed that class uh, in terms of the exercises? I was wondering uh, what the yeah. So the class the class came first. Yeah. Some of the stuff that's in PyTudes was write-ups of what was in the class, and then some of it was just continuing to uh, to uh, work on new problems. So what's the organizing madness of PyTudes? Is it just uh, yeah, a, collec just, a, a collection of cool exercises? Just whatever I thought was fun. Okay, awesome. So you were the director of search quality at Google from yeah. 2001 to, to 2005 in the early days uh, when there's just a few employees and when yeah. the when the company was growing like crazy, right? So, I mean, Google revolutionized the way we discover, share, and aggregate knowledge. So just, this is, uh, this is one of the fundamental aspects of civilization, right? Is information being shared and there's different mechanisms throughout history, but Google is just 10X improved that, right? And you were a part of that. Right, people discovering that information. So, what, what were some of the challenges, on a philosophical or the technical level, in those early days? It definitely was an exciting time, and as you say, we were doubling in size every year. And the challenges were: we wanted to get the right answers, right? And uh, we had to figure out what that meant. We had to implement that, and we had to make it all uh, efficient and. Uh, we had to keep on testing and seeing if we were delivering good answers. And now uh, when you say good answers, it means whatever people are typing in, in terms of keywords, in terms of that kind of thing, that the that the results they get are ordered by the desirability for them of those results. Like they're like the first thing they click on will likely be the thing that they were actually looking for. Right. One of the metrics we had was focused on the first thing. Uh, some of it was focused on the whole page. Some of it was focused on you know the top three or so. So we looked at a lot of different metrics for for how well we were doing, and we broke it down into subclasses of you know maybe here's a type of uh, of uh, query that we're not doing well on, then we try to fix that. Uh, early on, we started to realize that we were in an adversarial position, right? So we started thinking, uh, well, we're kind of like the card catalog in the library, mm -hmm. right? So the books are here and we're off to the side and, and we're just uh, reflecting what's there. And then we realized every time we make a change, the webmasters make a change <laughs> and it's uh, game theoretic. And so we had to think not only of, is this the right move for us to make now, but also if we make this move, what's the counter move gonna be is that going to get us into a work worse place? In which case, we won't make that move. We'll make a different move. 
And did you find, I mean, I assume with the popularity and the growth of the internet that people were creating new content. So you're almost helping guide the creation of new yeah, content. Yeah, so that's certainly true, right? So we, we, we definitely changed uh, the structure of the network, right? So if you think back, you know, in the, in the very early days, uh, uh, Larry and Sergey had the PageRank paper and John Kleinberg had this uh, hubs and authorities model, which says the web is made out of these uh, hubs, which will be my page of cool links about dogs or whatever. And people would just list links. Uh, and then there'd be authorities, which were the ones, uh, the page about dogs that most people link to. That doesn't happen anymore. People don't bother to say my page of cool links because mm -hmm. uh, we took over that function, right? So, so uh, we changed the way that worked. Did you imagine back then that the internet would be as massively vibrant as it is today? I mean, it was already growing quickly, but it's just another, I I don't know if you've ever, yeah. if today, if you sit back and you just look at the internet with wonder, the amount of content that's just constantly being created, constantly being shared yeah. and deployed. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's always been surprising to me. I, I guess I'm not very good at, at predicting, uh, the, predicting future. the future. Okay. Uh, and I remember, you know, being a graduate student in, in 1980 or so, and, uh, you know, we had the ARPANET, and then there was this uh, proposal to uh, commercialize it yeah. and have this internet, and this uh, uh, crazy Senator Gore <laughs> thought that might be a good idea. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, come on, you can't, you can't expect a commercial company to understand this technology. Yeah. They'll, they'll never be able to do it. Yeah, okay, we can have this .com domain, but it won't go anywhere. So I was wrong, Al Gore was right. At the same time, the nature of what it means to be a commercial company has changed too. So Google, yeah, in many yeah, ways, is, right. at its founding, is different than a, you know, what companies were before, I think. Right, so there's all these uh, business models that are so different than, than what was possible back then. So in terms of predicting the future, what do you think it takes to build a system that approaches human level intelligence? You've talked about, of course, that, we, you know, we shouldn't be so obsessed about creating human level intelligence. We just create systems that are very useful for humans. But what do you think it takes yeah. to, to, uh, to, to uh, yeah, approach that level? Right. So certainly I, I don't think human level intelligence is one thing, right? So I think right. there's lots of different tasks, lots of different capabilities. I also don't think uh, that should be the goal, right? So I, you know, I wouldn't want to create a uh, calculator that could do multiplication at human level, right? That, right. Would, that would be a step backwards. And so for many things, we should be aiming far beyond human level. Uh, for other things, uh, maybe human level is a good level to aim at. Uh, and for others, we'd say, well, let's not bother doing this because we, we already have humans can take on those tasks. So as you say, I like to focus on uh, what what's a useful tool. Right. and. And in some cases, being at human level is an important part of crossing that threshold to, to make the tool useful. So we see in, in things like these uh, uh, personal assistants now that you get either on your phone or on a, a speaker that sits on the table, uh, you want to be able to have a conversation with those. And, mm -hmm. and I think as an industry, we haven't quite figured out what the right model is for what these things can do. Uh, and we're aiming towards, well, you just have a conversation with them the way you can with a person. Right. Uh, but we haven't delivered on that model yet, right? So you can ask it 
what's the weather? You can ask it, play some nice songs, uh, and, uh, you know, five or six other things, and then you run out of stuff that it can do. In terms of a deep, meaningful connection. So you've mentioned the movie Her as one of your favorite AI movies. Do you think it's possible for a human being to fall in love with an AI system, AI assistant, as you mentioned? So taking this big leap from uh, what's the weather to you yeah. know having a, a deep connection. Yeah, I, I think uh, as people, that's what we love to do. Yeah. And uh, I was at a, a showing of her where we had a panel discussion and, and somebody asked me, uh, what other movie do you think her is similar to? And my answer was uh, Life of Brian. Which, which is not a science fiction movie, mm-hmm. uh, but both movies are about wanting to believe in something that's not necessarily real. <laughs> yeah, by the way, for people who don't know, it's Monty Python. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's brilliantly put. Right, but so, we, yeah. so I mean, I think that's just the way we are. We, we want to trust, we want to believe, we want to fall in love, and uh, it doesn't necessarily take that much, right? So... Uh, you know, my kids uh, fell in love with their teddy bear, right. and the teddy bear was not very interactive, right? <laughs> so that's all us yeah. pushing our feelings onto our devices and our things, and I think that that's what we like to do, so we'll continue to do that. So, yeah, as human beings, we long for that connection, and just AI has to uh, do a little bit of work to, uh, to catch yeah. us in the other end. Yeah, and certainly, you know... If you can get to uh, dog level, a lot of people have invested <laughs> a lot of uh, love in their pets. In their pets. Some some people, as I've been told, in working with autonomous vehicles, have invested a lot of love into their inanimate cars. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it really doesn't take much. Yeah. So what is a good test to linger on a topic that uh, may be silly or a little bit philosophical? What is a good test of intelligence in your view? Is natural conversation like in the Turing test a good a good test? Put another way, what would impress you yeah. if you saw a computer do it these days? Yeah, I mean, I get impressed all the time. Right. <laughs> okay. right. But so, like really uh, impress you. You know, Go playing, uh, StarCraft playing, uh, the, the, those are all pretty cool. You know, and I think, uh, sure, conversation is important. I think... Uh, you know, we sometimes have these tests where it's easy to fool the system, where you can have a chatbot that can have a conversation, but you never, uh, it never gets into a situation where it has to be deep enough that uh, it really reveals itself as, as being intelligent or not. I think, uh, you know, Turing suggested that, uh, but I think if he were alive, he'd say, you know, I didn't really mean that seriously, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and yeah. I think, uh, and, you know, this is just my opinion, but but I think Turing's point was not that uh, this test of conversation is a good test. I think his point was having a test is the right thing. Mm-hmm. So rather than having the philosopher say, oh, no, AI is impossible, you should say, well, we'll just have a test. And then the result of that will, will tell us the answer. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a conversation test. That's right. And coming up with you, but a test as the technology evolves is probably the right way. Do you worry, as a lot of the general public does, about, well, not a lot, but some vocal part of the general public about the existential threat of artificial intelligence? So looking farther into the future, as you said, most of us are not able to predict much. So when shrouded in such mystery, there's a concern of 
well, you think start mm-hmm. thinking about worst case. Is yeah. that something that occupies your mind space much? So I certainly think about uh, threats. I think about uh, dangers, uh, and I think uh, any new technology uh, has positives and negatives. And if it's a powerful technology, it can be used for bad as well as for good. So I'm certainly not worried about uh, the robot apocalypse uh, mm-hmm. and the Terminator type scenarios. I am worried about change in employment. And uh, are we going to be rea- able to react fast enough to deal with that? I think we're, you know, we're already seeing it today where a lot of people are, are disgruntled about uh, uh, the way income inequality is, is working. And, uh, and automation could help accelerate those kinds of, of problems. I see powerful technologies can always be used as weapons, uh, whether they're robots or drones or whatever. Uh, some of that... Uh, we're seeing due to AI, a lot of it, uh, you don't need AI. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know what's a, what's a worse threat, if it's an autonomous drone or uh, it's uh, CRISPR technology becoming available, or we have lots of uh, threats to face, and some of them involve AI and some of them don't. So the threats that technology presents, are you, for the most part, optimistic about technology also alleviating those threats or creating new opportunities or protecting us from the more detrimental effects of these? Yeah, I don't know. Again, it's hard to predict the future. And uh, (laughs) as a society so far, we've survived uh, nuclear bombs and and other things. Of course, uh, only societies that have survived are having this conversation. (laughs) So uh, uh, maybe that's a survivorship bias there. Yeah. What problem stands out to you as exciting, challenging, impactful to work on in the near future for yourself, for the community, in, yeah. in broadly? So, I, you know, we talked about these uh, assistance and conversation. I, I think that's a great area. I think uh, combining uh, common sense reasoning uh, with uh, the power of data is a, a great area. In which application? In in conversational agent or just broadly? Just in, in general, yeah. As a programmer, I'm interested in uh, programming tools, both in terms of uh, you know the current systems we have today with with TensorFlow and so on. Can we make them much easier to use for a broader uh, class of people? And also, can we apply uh, machine learning to uh, the more traditional type of programming? Right. So, you know. When you go to Google and you uh, type in a query and you spell something wrong, it says, did you mean? Mm-hmm. And the reason we're able to do that is because lots of other people made a similar error and then they corrected it. Uh, we should be able to go into our code bases and our bug fix spaces. And uh, when I type a line of code, it should be able to say, did you mean such and such? If you type this today, you're probably going to fi- type in this bug fix uh, tomorrow. Yeah, that's a really exciting application of uh, almost uh, a, an assistant for the coding programming experience yeah. at every level. So I think I could safely speak for the entire AI community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> First of all, for uh, thanking you for the amazing work you've done, uh, certainly for the amazing work you've done with uh, AI, a modern approach book. Yeah, thank I you. think we're all looking forward very much for the fourth edition and then the fifth edition and so yeah, on. Yeah. So uh Peter, thank you so much for talking today. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure.